So I think probably the, the chapter in the book that I've been asked about the most is the chapter on stuff is what I call it, you know, the new religion and the basic idea. And it comes from first, first Timothy, second Timothy, uh, one of those two where the writer says, uh, you know, a lot of people have for the love of money is the root of all evil. Um, and many people have walked away from the faith because of it. And I, I, I have just never seen anybody explore this idea that's so clearly laid out in Scripture that a lot of people walk away from faith, not because they have, you know, existential questions or despair or, you know, other religions or what do I do about science? No, a lot of people walk away from faith uh, because they had a lot of stuff and it made God irrelevant, a pain, um, someone they needed to get rid of so they could enjoy their stuff. You know, and it's so clearly laid out, but it's never explored. Um, and so that is the idea that stuff causes a crisis of faith because God, uh, as clearly laid out through all of Scripture, is a threat to our stuff because God says that all of our stuff is actually His stuff. You know, that's throughout Psalm 24, verse 1 the earth is the Lord's and everything it contains. I don't own anything. You, Seth, you don't own anything. God owns everything. Everything that we have, we have on loan. That's like a pretty tough thing to really believe this day and age. Um, and so I do think that our stuff, which we love, has made believing in God very inconvenient. Uh, so we've just kind of decided on a subconscious level, none of this was intentional, that it would just be easier to just not believe in God so we could just enjoy our stuff. Blessed are you, weary sinner, the one whose hope is gone. Blessed are all of the broken, God can hear your song. Lift your voice, lift your voice, oh, lift your voice. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Can I Say This at Church podcast. Regardless of what my voice sounds like, I am still Seth, your host. I want to apologize up front for this intro and the outro. It was recorded well after the conversation with Austin. And fall apparently has set in. And with that comes whatever has happened to my throat. So firstly, thank you so much to each and every one of the patron supporters. And thank you each and every one of you that have reviewed the show on iTunes, Google Play, Podbean, everywhere else. The Facebook pages, the Twitter pages, the, the private discussion group. Um, for honest discussions around religion and anything else uh, are all upticking. And I've really gotten to know uh, a few of you that I know are listening to the show really have enjoyed it on September 11th, Austin Fisher, who is a returning guest of the show, uh, who is the lead pastor at Vista community church in temple, Texas prior. He wrote a book called young restless and no longer reformed, uh, which dealt a little bit or quite a bit with Calvinism and uh, his fall away from, fundamentalism. But the problem is pastors still struggle the same way that you and I do. They just don't get to turn it off. They still have to show up on Sunday. And so faith in the shadows is about that. How as a person in leadership of the church, how we deal with the problem of evil, how we deal with doubt, how we wrestle with grief, how we deal with cancer and kids, and how we still continue to worship God through that doubt. Because scripture is fairly clear. It's okay to doubt. There's nothing wrong with doubt. Certainty and the need to have it, I believe, will kill the church if we can't learn to wrestle and struggle with questions that we have. 
I'm excited for you to hear today's conversation. If you're not familiar with Austin, I would recommend you find him on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. But on Twitter, um, you'll you'll see a bit of his theology at play as he as he discusses things with people daily. So um, you'll find the links to his socials in the show notes. Here we go. Faith in the Shadows with Austin Fisher. Welcome all to the table, every man, woman, and child. Come and feast with thanksgiving, we come and reconcile. Open our hearts. Austin, welcome back to the Can I Say This at Church podcast. You were one of three people that has come back for the second time. Good company. So a, a person that I count as a friend, Keith Giles, who also gets his name bashed around a lot for some of his views, but that's fine. Um, and then Alexander Shia, who is one of my, well, he's someone that's greatly impacted my spiritual journey with his works and with our conversations and chats that we've had afterward. And so welcome to the club of second time comers to the show. Yeah, it's elite company. I'm glad to be in it. I'm glad to be back. <laughs> For those that don't know, you're a pastor in Texas or a co-lead pastor or a lead pastor. I'm not sure how you differentiate that when there's two pastors. Yeah, we just got two lead pastors. That's fine. Uh, in Texas, and so I already like you, as we said last time, because I'm also from Texas. Yep. And for those that want to know a bit more about Austin and what brought him to where he's at now, I would recommend going back about a month's worth of episodes and... You can hear that there. So we will forego all that. I'm greatly excited to talk to you about this book that you had come out on September 11th called Faith in the Shadows, Finding Christ in the Mist of Doubt. And I was hoping you could tell me a bit a, a bit more specifically of why you wrote the book. Like It's, it's extremely personal. Um, and there were stories in here that were deeply moving as I read it for different reasons, and we'll, I'm sure we'll get to it in a minute. But what is, why, why this? Yeah, so I, I wrote this book because, um, I mean, I, I really did, and we'll get into it, but I, I almost walked away from from my faith even as as a pastor and um, really struggled with what to do with this kind of growing doubt I had over a period of years and didn't know how to process it, felt ashamed of it. Um, and so when I had kind of got to a better place with it all, just thought how helpful it would be for a lot of other people who were doubting who aren't even pastors who don't have the training or resources that I have, who have no clue what to do with their doubts. And we know that people doubt, you know, that's not really up for debate. We mm -hmm. will doubt. Um, that's not a decision we get to make. The only decision we get to make is what we're going to do with our doubts. And um, my kind of conviction in the book was that doubt makes people abandon their faith, obviously. But people don't abandon their faith because they have doubts so much as people abandon their faith because they think they're not allowed to have doubts. And a lot of people aren't aware that within the Christian tradition, there's this huge history of faithful doubting, stretching all the way back to the apostles, right? Which is one of the stories I tell in the book, the Great Commission. Uh, the disciples are up on this mountain. Jesus is resurrected. They look into the eyes of the resurrected Christ. And we're told they saw him and they worshiped him, but they still doubted. Yeah. Right? And how is that possible? How could somebody look <laughs> at the resurrected Christ and still doubt? I mean, most of us probably would say, hey, man, you give me you know, five minutes with the resurrected Jesus and I wouldn't doubt for the rest of my life. I wouldn't need anything else from God for the rest of my life. And yet the apostles got that and they still doubted. And Jesus still built the church yeah. on these 11 apostles who saw him, 
but still doubted. And so no Christian should think they have to choose between Jesus and their doubts, and yet most of us do. What do you think is the relationship between faith and doubt? Like, how is that intertwined? Like, can I have a faith that's worth having without having doubts? So that's a great question. Um, One of the things I really tried to do in the book was not I'm not trying to convince people they should doubt. You know, mm-hmm. some people, you know, there's some seasons where we don't doubt. There's some people who just, for various reasons, never really doubt. And that's fine. So I don't want to talk you into it. But it is my conviction that most of us will will doubt. And that properly understood, Christian faith comes packaged with a set of beliefs that when they interact with the kind of relentless suffering we find in our world, it's almost inevitable that some sort of crisis of faith will happen. And so one of the things I mentioned in the book in a chapter on evil is um, if evil doesn't almost make you walk away from faith at some point, um, then you may not have biblical faith or you may not understand evil or you may not have felt the full weight of evil. Yeah, I, I agree. So my wife is a nurse and, um, she takes care of some kids that are really sick, like the sickest of the sick that have to come for chemo and cancer and yeah. Crohn's. And there's nothing more uh, disagreeable. Isn't the strong. I don't know what the strongest word. There's nothing more offensive than a kid 10 years old with brain cancer yeah. that dies. There's nothing yeah. more evil to me mm-hmm. because there isn't any malicious intent. They didn't do anything. I mean, what could they have done? And I, I, I talk with people constantly. And honestly, that's one of the few times that people actually talk religion with me when it's something medical with their family yeah. members. And I don't know why that is, why there's something different about that kind of evil as opposed to people in you know, other countries. Like you reference a, an earthquake story um, in your book. And I don't know why there's any difference in, in evil. Is Can we categorize evil in that way? Is there a, a worse evil? So there's been a long running kind of debate among um, philosophers and a distinction drawn between moral evil and natural evil, you know, and so moral evil would be, you know, Seth, you do something wrong and, and you get a consequence for that. And and that, you know, the consequences seem to greatly outweigh the offense. Sometimes that we can at least make some sort of sense of that. Like all of us have some sense of justice and when we do things wrong, then sometimes there are consequences. Natural evil is, is more difficult because there's nobody to blame for an earthquake, mm-hmm. you know, like, you know, the, the kids in the orphanage I mentioned in the book who were affected by this earthquake, they didn't do anything to cause an earthquake. The kid with cancer didn't do anything to deserve cancer. Mm-hmm. And so it's just harder to find culpability. And if there's no culpability, then it just seems like gratuitous, needless suffering and gratuitous, needless suffering is a big problem for a Christian because we believe in a God of infinite beauty and grace. I didn't send this to you in the questions, but I'm curious because I see the painting that you referenced at the beginning of your book literally right behind you. Can you it's walk real. me? Can you walk the listeners through? And and I'm going to advise you strongly: go buy the book. Um, honestly, you might be able to see it in the preview copies that Amazon gives you, like one or two pages for free. Yeah. Uh, a, a bit of the story of that Rembrandt, Return of the Prodigal Son. Can you walk through a bit of that analogy and how that? painting specifically behind you has impacted your, I mean, just the way that you worship and the way that you lead people in worship. Sure. So Rembrandt's Return of the Prodigal is one of the most famous paintings, certainly in the Western world. And um, if you've ever looked at it, you know, you've got the kind of the key figures, the father, his prodigal son, the older brother, and we're familiar with those three figures. They're central. Um, But then on the kind of periphery of the painting, you, you start to see these other figures and they're kind of in the shadows. And then like in the deepest, I think it's the yeah top left corner, there's this figure that is impossible to see unless you have a really high quality print of the painting. Um, it's this figure like kind of, 
in the very back in the shadows watching this you know incredible scene of reconciliation but uh, and it looks like it's a woman um, <clears throat> and her face is real kind of indifferent like she's taking it in but she's not experiencing it she knows that something's happening but she doesn't quite know what it is and so I start off the book by telling the story of how um, I do have this painting in my office and I sit across from it most every day when I have time and just kind of let it center me like this is my reminder of what the universe is about. It's about the reconciliation of God, God reaching out to sinners. And I remember one day, though, looking at, at the painting and I've been going through the season of really difficult doubt. Instead of uh, the center of gravity in the painting being the reconciliation between father and prodigal, my eyes kept going to this woman who's tucked away in the shadows and just kind of wondering what she thinks about what she sees, wondering how she feels about what she sees and feeling like in some sense, that's where I was in my faith. Like I, I kind of believed in, in, in God at that point and I had seen things, but I wasn't there where the action was. It was like I was watching the reconciliation unfold and I was watching other people have faith, but I didn't feel like I really had faith. Um, think of the story of Paul and his companions, you know, when Paul gets blinded uh, on the road to Damascus and <clears throat> Paul hears this voice and he sees something and his friends like kind of hear something, but they don't see anything, but they see Paul seeing something. And that's kind of what faith had become <laughs> for me, me seeing other people see things, but I just wasn't seeing it or hearing it anymore. Yeah. So what changes then? So if I'm trying to relate with this woman that, and and I will say, if you Google it, you can get a good enough quality, but you do have to full screen the thing to find that image because I'd never noticed her either. I'd seen that picture in many, I mean, many, many books. It's it's referenced often. Um, who is is that the only role that she plays? Is a is a is a bystander that is watching and not interacting at all? Is there any other role that that character in that painting can play in our faith? Oh, I mean, so I mean, I think one thing you could say about her is while she's not. Um, at the center of the action kind of in the scene, she's still there and she's still hanging around. And I think that's one of the things I, I learned as I, you know, was trying to figure out if I was going to walk away from faith or not is I both chose to, and other people kind of chose for me to still keep me around. And, e and even though my faith wasn't, you know, in the light in a great place, it was still close enough that I caught these little flickers of the light and other people's faith kind of, I, I talk about in a post that other people kind of believed for me for a little bit. Mm -hmm. And I actually discovered that other people can, at least for a time, believe for you. So like as a pastor, you know, I, I still had to show up to church and all that. <laughs> and even though I didn't really know if I believed or how much I believed, I knew other people believed and I saw their belief and their belief carried me for a season when I didn't have much belief. Um, mm. And so I think that's a really important lesson to learn, especially for a lot of us Protestants who are so individualistic and priesthood of all believers is, is great and all, but sometimes it can go sour. And there are times when we need others to believe for us and just showing up, even when you don't feel like it um, can kind of keep you in the game when otherwise you might walk away. That reminds me of, you know, of, of a person's marriage or of a person's friendship or, or a relationship with someone that's long-term. I mean, even if, even if I'm upset with my wife, we're still in this, like I got to do yeah. it. You can't just peace out. So, mm -hmm. um, and that's an oversimplification, but it's an easy analogy mm -hmm. in your book. You talk about people that are just naturally talented, gifted Christians, you know, the LeBron James of Christians <laughs> and, and, yeah. um, that they're just born with a gift and, and, and that that type of gifting or that type of Christianity is not a faith that will sustain them. 
how does that work? Like, what is that kind of Christian? And not to name any names, what does that look like? Like, how is that something like this eight year old kid is on is 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 teaching the pastor, or they just know the right answers often? Like, what does that actually look like? Yeah. So what I mean there, and um, I think that's in chapter one, is that there there's some people for whom faith specifically, you know, which is one aspect of Christianity, faith. Um, faith just comes really easily for some people. Some people believing that God is good and obviously there, even when the most horrendous things happen, like it, they would never think to question their faith. And that's great. You know, again, good on them. Um, but for a lot of us, faith does not come naturally. Um, and faith has never come naturally for me. Like certain things, the general idea of there being a God, that comes naturally enough. Um, but I've just never found a lot of the, you know, classic uh, apologetic arguments for Christianity totally persuasive. Um, you know, when I do funerals for children, which I have to do a lot, I'm a pastor at a young church. So when I do funerals, it's usually for children. Um, mm. I don't, you know, like see a divine purpose behind it. I just see nonsense. It's all I see. It's all I've ever seen. It's probably all I'll ever see. And so faith in those moments is the least natural thing imaginable for me. So if you're that sort of person, and again, I, I'm not saying that's better. I'm not saying that's worse. It's just who I am. And there are a lot of us who are like that. Uh, if that's you, then you have to learn some habits to sustain you in this faith that doesn't necessarily come natural for you. Yeah. And it comes with its own set of strengths and weaknesses. You know, like what I, I think one of the things I say in the book is what I lack in ease when it comes to my faith, I make up for in grit. I got a lot of grit when it comes to my faith, and I've learned how to push through. And some of us have to grit it out because it's not easy for us. That's probably the Texas in you. And honestly, I can relate to that. Like, I'm used to being, I mean, if you want to go get groceries, you got to drive an hour. I don't believe that's the case anymore, but at least where I'm from in Texas, like, we're planning this out. <laughs> we're spending $800 and we're getting three baskets full. We got to grit it out, and it's, we got to make it last. You don't ask for yeah. help. You've got to make it work, which is also mm -hmm. dangerous, as we alluded to earlier. You need to come beside people if you're always relying on yourself when. When you break, mm -hmm. everything breaks. I have found in having these conversations repetitively and, and recently having more specific conversations with listeners of the show that it is hard to define God and that I struggle to define God when people ask me who God is uh, at a level without having any church talk in it. And mm -hmm. so when we have faith in a God that we worship, how do we state what that God is? So if you're a Christian, um, any attempt to explain who God is or what God is like has to start with Jesus. Um, and so what I always tell people is, hey, you know, uh, there are all these arguments out there, uh, historical arguments, rational arguments, on and on and on. And some of them are kind of persuasive, but at the end of the day, none of them are bulletproof. And so here's why I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian because a couple thousand years ago, there was this dude named Jesus. And he lived a beautiful life, the most beautiful life that's ever been living. Um, he literally changed the world, and not by raising an army or conquering anything. He, he changed the world by dying and living a beautiful life while dying and forgiving the people who killed him. It was so powerful mm -hmm. that it literally changed the course of history. And, and I have experienced some sense of that mystery that changed the world. Um, and so while I'm not certain about all sorts of things, I follow Jesus because I think it's the most beautiful way to live my life. And I think that if you take a few steps towards him, you'll probably find that the same is true for you. And then all the other stuff, man, like it can make some sense, but it only makes sense if you're like moving in the direction of Jesus. And you're probably only going to start moving in the direction of Jesus if you think that Jesus is beautiful. Well, the reason I say it's hard for me is when I'm talking to people, I'm talking to my fundamental 
fun, fun, oh, I hate this word, my fundamentalist evangelical brethren. And so when I describe yeah. God, it doesn't sound, I do tend to gravitate to Jesus, but it doesn't sound like what they hear in church each week. And yeah. which is funny that Jesus is offensive to Christians often, but that's where I struggle. And, and so lately, though, I really find myself with, I, I relate a lot to the Eastern, Eastern orthodoxies of some other people, like just the practices and the yeah. cadences, and that's not Protestantism. And so when I try to describe God, I, it's a mix of everything. And so I don't actually know what I am. So I, I really, yeah, you're, you're really promiscuous struggle. in your theological sensibility. <laughs> promiscuous. Yeah. <laughs> I, guess, I guess that works. Why is fundamentalism a possible issue for the church for the next 10, 15 years? So fundamentalism, as, as I define it in the book, is less a specific set of beliefs, and it's more a way of believing. So fundamentalism is more spirit than form, more attitude than you know, a set of propositions. And so when, when I say fundamentalism, what I mean is um, <clears throat> a general posture of doing theology that is very rigid and that has a deep need for certainty. Um, and, and I think fundamentalism is a huge danger because as we've realized the world hasn't got more complex we've just realized how complex the world always was is what's happened you know in the last couple hundred years and so fundamentalism i think um is trying to retreat back to um a very naive picture of what scripture is almost a complete um refusal to acknowledge some of the claims and discoveries that have been made in science how many different other religions there are, how many really good questions there are out there. Mm -hmm. um, and so fundamentalism, I think, is a danger because it teaches people that the only way to have faith is to have a certain faith. And the only way to have a certain faith, honestly, is to not ask any questions. Mm -hmm. And so it sets people up for failure. And so you got the typical story of the typical, you know, fundamentalist student who was told that they have to believe the earth was created in six literal days, 6,000 years ago. Um, if that's not true, then Jesus wasn't God. They go to college, they take freshman biology or geology, and they see all the facts laid out for it. And they realize all these kind of cheap answers they've been given about, you know, uh, how the dinosaurs just didn't make it on the ark or whatever it was don't work. And so then they're faced with this crisis of faith where they go, well, I can believe in, you know, science and evolution, or I can believe in Jesus, but I can't believe in both. Science and evolution is pretty clearly real. It's a little more tangible than Jesus. So it looks like I'm walking away from Jesus. And that happens all the time. Like we know that the majority of students who leave home end up walking away from their faith. Mm -hmm. Some of them will come back once they have kids and they need help raising their kids. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, most of them <laughs> won't come back. And, and this is what's hard for me about fundamentalism. There are so many legitimate reasons to have a crisis of faith, right? Like evil, evil is a great reason not to be a Christian. You know, it's a great reason to have a crisis of faith. Um, you having to choose between Jesus and evolution is a really bad reason to have a crisis of faith. And so I hate that we have created these artificial crises of faith for people when there are so many legitimate ones out there. And that's what fundamentalism has done. It's just given us more and more reasons to walk away from our faith, and they're really bad reasons for the most part. Yeah. You talk, and I like the way you talk about science in your book. Um, you, and I, I could find the page if you're patient with me, but you may know it. Uh, you, you give a quote from someone else basically saying that when when we're talking about science and the universe and, and whatnot, it is describing how the world works and that religion yeah. is describing 
why it works, that's not right. That's not right. No, it's it's a quote from um, a rabbi named Jonathan Sachs. He's really well known. And he says, science takes things apart to see how they work. Religion puts things together to see what they mean, which is just a really helpful, like punchy explanation to help you see that science and religion look at reality from different angles, asking different questions. And so they come to different conclusions about things. And so there is some overlap in certain areas, but for the most part, science and religion are not in competition with each other. And, and when we really trace it out, I mean, this is one of the things I say in the book, I'm not aware of a single core claim of Orthodox Christian faith that science has got anywhere near contradicting. Not one, not a single one. And yet there is this general impression among Christians and non-Christians that science and Christianity are incompatible. And I really think that's one area where the modern church, and it's not the whole church, like most Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, certainly, they don't have this struggle with science that Protestants do. Mm-hmm. It's, it's mainly a Protestant problem, and it's a problem that's mainly rooted in rigid biblical literalism. No, I agree. I've, I've learned from just personal practice that the other religions that are the other religions, the other versions of our faith that aren't Protestantism are less legal, less contractual, less uh, banknote of, I prayed prayer to Jesus, and so I am guaranteed this. This is the promissory note. Let's do this thing. But that is also the most scary part for me, because I'm not used to dealing with those emotions. I wasn't trained to handle emotions. Yeah, yeah. And again, and there are ways, there are things Protestantism does really, really well. Um, I'm still a Protestant, and, and Predley am. I am drawn and just more open to, obviously, Eastern Orthodox traditions, Catholic theology, you name it. Um, and so, and honestly, it's less of a Protestantism mm-hmm. issue. And again, it's more of a fundamentalism issue. And they're a Catholic fundamentalist. Um, there probably aren't many Eastern Orthodox fundamentalists, but <laughs> <laughs> they're certainly Catholic fundamentalists and Protestant fundamentalists. And that's where the problem is. Um, again, there are enough legitimate reasons to question Christian faith without the fundamentalists, God bless their hearts, giving us extra bad reasons. So, you know, I say in the book, uh, love the fundamentalist, hate the fundamentalism. You say in the book, and this makes me sad because I feel like it gives a reason for evil to be there. And that's probably wrong. This is probably me inferring something that I'm going through. But you say in the book that a direct correlation between our ability to apprehend beauty and our ability to apprehend brutality, like there's just Mm -hmm. a correlation between there. And there's something about that that feels wrong to me. Like, I shouldn't have to experience something horrible to also see something beautiful. Or am I reading, am I reading more into that than I should? Sure. So it, it sounds like you're reading it like I'm given kind of the, the Calvinist, more or less, explanation mm-hmm. for evil, which is, you know, there, there has to be a hell for us to appreciate heaven. There has to be wrath for us to appreciate God's mercy, so on and so forth. And obviously, I don't believe that. I spell that out pretty clearly mm-hmm. in the book. And so what I am trying to say there is um, the more you come to understand just how beautiful and kind God is, Jesus is, the more evil becomes a problem for you, right? So if 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 Jesus wasn't really that good and the God of Christianity was just like kind of good, then evil wouldn't be that big of a problem because it's like, well, you know, God's good, but he's just kind of good. So, Mm -hmm. you know, yeah, kids die and and terrible things happen to people. But, you know, again, God's just kind of good. So that's just kind of bad. But if God's infinite goodness, then all of a sudden any evil becomes infinitely evil for you. And so that's what I'm trying to say there is once your senses get kind of trained and tuned in to seeing just how beautiful God is, 
then you see more and more brutality in the world. You're more tuned in to both beauty and brutality once you understand how good God is. And I might have missaid it, or the so what I'm trying to say is it the brutality is overwhelming. Like it's mm-hmm. it seems unsolvable. It seems yeah. untenable. And it doesn't sit right with me. And I know that that means I'm yeah. called to do something about it, but I feel like it doesn't matter what I do, it never seems to matter. Yeah, there's a there's a real kind of primal tension in Christian faith between surrender and rebellion. Um, we're called to, in some sense, rebel against evil um, and ride it whenever we can. But there's also this sense in which we can never write all the evil. We can write so little evil. So we have to <clears throat> surrender in the sense that we have to ultimately trust God to set evil right. I think it was Moltmann who said that um, at the end of the day, <clears throat> the only credible theodicy is eschatology, which just means at the end of the day, we're, we're trusting God to sort this thing out. Um, and that's really the only sense we can make of it. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Most people know, and I think I've alluded to this on the show, I, I work at a bank for a living, and I there's a part of me that struggles. I'm beginning to believe that um, capitalism is not inherently wrong, but most likely the way we're doing it is probably sinful, just because it enforces greed and want, mm-hmm. and and you allude, allude to a story of a, of a divine council of demonic beings coming together and being like, hey, what's the best way to get people to not believe in God? <laughs> yeah. And when I read that story of, of, of Mammon, and then everyone else being like, this is an awful idea, and Satan be like, no, that's going to work. Like, people, mm-hmm. this is going to hit at their home. I personally wrestle with the daily job, which I feel like I'm pretty good at. And I know its outcomes are not working well for what I think the kingdom of God should look like. Yeah. I don't know what to do with that. Yeah. So I think probably the the chapter in the book that I've been asked about the most is the chapter on stuff is what I call it, you know, the new religion and the basic idea. And it comes from first, first Timothy, second Timothy, uh, Mm. one of those two where, the writer says, uh, you know, a lot of people have, for the love of money is the root of all evil. Um, and many people have walked away from the faith because of it. And I, I, I have just never seen anybody explore this idea that's so clearly laid out in Scripture that a lot of people walk away from faith, not because they have, you know, existential questions or despair or, you know, other religions or what do I do about science? No, a lot of people walk away from faith uh, because they had a lot of stuff. And it made God irrelevant, a pain, um, someone they needed to get rid of so they could enjoy their stuff. You know, and it's so clearly laid out, but it's never explored. Um, and so that is the idea that stuff causes a crisis of faith because God, uh, as clearly laid out through all of Scripture, is a threat to our stuff because God says that all of our stuff is actually His stuff. You know, that's throughout Psalm 24, verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and everything it contains. I don't own anything. You, Seth, you don't own anything. God owns everything. Everything that we have, we have on loan. That's like a pretty tough thing to really believe this Mm -hmm. day and age. Um, And so I do think that our stuff, which we love, 
has made believing in God very inconvenient. Uh, so we've just kind of decided on a subconscious level, none of this was intentional, that it would just be easier to just not believe in God so we could just enjoy our stuff. And so to your question, that was a long way to get <laughs> to your question, which is, well, you know, I'm a part of the system that produces absurd amounts of stuff. And it really, really benefits a few people. And then it crushes a whole lot of people. What do I do? Uh, I, you know, I don't have an answer to that one. <laughs> what, what I would say is uh, uh, the church, I, I think, <clears throat> has to become a place where we're willing to give a more honest look about capitalism. And then more specifically, though, so when we talk about this at my church, and we do a lot, people get crushed under the weight of it because they're like, well, what am I supposed to do, man? Like become Amish and <laughs> get off the grid? Like, you know, and I think it's helpful to go, hey, you know what? Stop trying to think so big about this. We say at my church all the time, you can't change the world. You can't change the world. You can well, change your world. That's, that's right? heartening. But you can't change the world. And so what we try to practice in our church is um, within the church, um, something close to a communalism, uh, not communism, but a communalism, which I think the New Testament clearly lays out. And if we practice something like that, and we've done our little piece um, to be faithful to what the kingdom of God looks like, and if we invite people to come be a part of this community, that is the church, then we are this little bitty pocket of resistance in the world. Because again, we're not changing the world. We're not changing capitalism, but you could change your world. And that would probably start out by you and your church living out the New Testament teachings on wealth at least a little bit better. Well, the pushback that I get is not a religious one. So when I'll bring that up anywhere, mostly online, but I've gotten to where I don't even argue with people on social media anymore because I just don't have the mental and what? emotional capacity. What, it doesn't capacity. work for you? No. Well, <laughs> usually what I say is appreciate your input and respond with a passive-aggressive meme over yeah. and over. It works oh, well. It, kills it, them. it, it makes kills me them. feel well. It makes me yes. feel good. But in, in person, I hear people say, well, that's just socialism. Like you're not talking about religion and you're not talking about Jesus. You're talking yeah. about government. And yeah. then it turns into something entirely different from Romans. It turns into a, a an entirely different conversation. And it, yeah. it's like the goalpost moves to a different entire field Absolutely. in a different entire sport that doesn't Absolutely. need to have goalposts. So I really struggle with having an honest conversation with people because we don't have the same foundational yeah. understanding of, it, of, of what we're talking about. Well, that's where one of the things that, that we try to do at my church when we deal with this is um, I see one of my primary goals as a pastor in this particular cultural day and age is to help people understand that the primary sphere of their political involvement is in their church, not out in the world, not in Washington, D.C., not on Wall Street. But when they think politics, they ought to first and foremost think their church. Okay, so just put all the big picture government conversations about, you know, is capitalism really the best system? Is it something else? What do we do? And just go, hey, if we were to be faithful to the New Testament's teachings on wealth in our church, what would that look like? And you start there and you let, you know, those seeds start to grow in people. And I found that it does grow over time, because if you get caught up in the big picture conversation about like, well, you know, should the government be capitalist or not? All it does is just, just a bunch of cathartic chat, 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 chat that no one can even do anything about. Like, how can you act on is capitalism good or bad? Like, what, what could you possibly do one way or the other to act on whatever you think about that? You can't really do anything if you're thinking big picture. But if you think in the context of your specific community and what the New Testament teaches about community, then it actually becomes actionable. So I don't, 
I'm, I'm not here to tell the government what to do. I'm here to tell my church what to do. Hmm. And I want my church to understand that their Christian involvement and their political allegiance to Jesus in the context of their actual community should get more of their attention than national conversations about politics. And so inside the church, uh, it probably ought to look something close to socialism or at least a communalism. Um, and let's just start there and see what happens from and so, and you use this analogy in the book of, you know, having a telescopic lens view as opposed to a microscopic lens view. And so if we're zooming in microscopically, that looks like when someone in my local congregation needs something, we band together and pay for it, or we band together and fix it, or they need a new roof and so we do it, or whatever yep. it is. Is that what I'm hearing you say? Or yeah, do you mean I, the entire community around the church, which I feel like is probably the right answer, but... Well, I, this is what I think, um, and I'm a little Hauerwasian when it comes to this. So I, I love Hauerwas. I think the Anabaptists have this really right. Um, there's a line in Galatians 6, I think it's verse 14, where Paul says, hey, do good to everybody, especially those of the household of faith. Okay, and so we hear that, and I think we can go, ah, oh, man, that's everything that's wrong with religion. You know, like take care of your own household first, ignore the world. But that's clearly, no one could accuse Paul of that, right? Paul evangelized the world. Um, so that's not what Paul's saying. What I think Paul is giving here is a vision of the Christian community has to be a viable, vibrant, alternative way of life in the world, okay? And if it's not, then, then we don't really have anything to offer the world. And so focus on making sure that the church is actually a viable, vibrant alternative that in some sense embodies the kingdom of God. And we invite the world into that community, right? It's a close community, but it's an open community. And that ultimately is the best thing that we can offer the world. So specifically, like at my church, we do a lot of benevolence for people who need help, addicted, homeless, and we help them up to a certain dollar amount when we can. But we always tell them, hey, if you become a part of our community, I promise you'll get taken care of. I have never met a single person at my church who had a serious need that was not met. And we're not afraid to attach <clears throat> that little bitty, you know, carrot at the end of the stick, because we know ultimately if we just give them a little help here and there, we're not providing any sort of holistic healing. But if they come and they ground themselves in our community, they're going to experience holistic healing. And so we don't mind giving that caveat because that's ultimately the best thing we could offer somebody. Come be a part of our community and I promise you'll get taken care of. Well, and I think if it's intentional like that, the act of giving whatever you're giving away I've never given something away and not felt good about doing it. And there's something that's restorative about giving your time, your whatever. Uh, there's two more things I want to ask you about. And so you say in your book that you felt like, what do you say? I've got it written down here. Um, you felt yourself teetering on the, le on the edge of just believing that there is no God, which uh, we talked about at the very beginning, but that you were not capable of not believing in a God and either I just realized that's a double negative where you wrote it that way. I probably wrote it down wrong. Um, so what does that mean? Like, how can someone not be capable of not believing in a God? Because I know a lot of agnostics and atheists that would highly say, absolutely not. It's entirely possible to not believe in a God. Yeah. So if, if you grew up um, in the Western world, which most people listening to this podcast mm -hmm. probably did, um, my... My thesis would be that, that you are, in a certain sense, not capable of understanding what it would be like to not believe in God, because the world in which you live and move and have your being is so grounded and rooted in the idea of God that it's just kind of inescapable. It's ubiquitous. Like, so many of the things that you believe in 
are so inescapably tied to the idea of God, Christianity specifically, but the idea of God at minimum, that you're just not really capable of even understanding what it would mean to not believe in God. So, for example, I mean, a lot of the really vocal kind of new atheists, <clears throat> so you're talking Sam Harris, uh, Dennett, Richard Dawkins, those folks, mm -hmm. um, tend to like really have high views of, um, you know, it being important for there to be justice and fairness and so on and so forth in the world. But those are ideas that really don't make any sense without there being a God. And those were ideas that did not exist in their present form um, until what I would call the moral eruption of Christianity forever changed the way we think about morality, the way we think about other people. Um, and so if you're an heir to the Western tradition, um, which again, everybody listening to this podcast is, then I just, I, you can say you don't believe in God, but I just don't think you know what you're talking about um, because you would have to so reinvent who you are um, and the cultural process that has produced who you are at this particular place, at this particular set of circumstances at this particular point in time that I just really don't think you even know what you're talking about when you say you don't believe in God. Like you can feel like there probably isn't a God. You can wish there's not a God. Um, but to reject God wholesale would mean a rejection of basically the Western tradition, which I just don't think any of us are fully capable of. Yeah. Um, and we can say we do, but we don't know what we're talking about, I don't think. So when you say moral eruption, do you mean specifically for Christianity or the West, or do you mean like globally? Like when Christianity became Christianity, you know, when the church was founded, like it it changed the moral compass of humanity? Is that what I'm hearing you say? Oh, absolutely. I mean, again, there were some basic ideas of, um, you know, justice in the ancient world that have been around for a long time. We know that. I would never dispute that. But this idea that, you know, all humans— Every single human is created with inalienable rights with, uh, you know, constitution here. Uh, these rights to life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness that no human deserves to be tortured or trampled on. Like those were not beliefs in the ancient world. And those were not beliefs that were given to us as a result of enlightenment rationality. Those were beliefs that were given to us by Christianity. Right? Uh, Not, nothing yeah. like that, nothing to that level had ever been believed in the history of the world. Um, we all now just kind of assume that the Enlightenment gave us those ideas, but it's complete nonsense. Christ gave us those ideas. And again, they're present in some ways in some other religious traditions, but specifically that idea that every human has been created in the image of God um, with a dignity that is violated, prince and pauper, sinner and saint alike. Um, is an idea that Christianity gave us. And it's an idea that's so deeply embedded in the Western um, worldview that we don't even know how to get rid of it. And again, it is not an idea that reason magically gave to us one day. Reason, you go around the world, and if you're reasonable, the world does not tell you that all people are created equally with a, you know, a right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. If anything, the world tells you the exact opposite. Yeah, yeah. You just ride around my county, and the world will tell you that. Um, yes, yeah, complete the, nonsense. The fact that schools are uh, portioned money at a federal or local level uh, based on the average property value of the neighborhood they're in would tell you that. Like, there's a lot of things that tell you that. And I'd Absolutely. argue that we don't believe that all people are created equal because uh, we don't act like it. Uh, and when we do try to act like it, people either call you racist or racist. Or racist. It doesn't really matter which direction you're taking it from. If you're coming at it from, you know, a white uh -huh. privilege, a white power, a black, what doesn't matter what what, yeah. what angle you're coming from. You're racist yeah. for that side, uh, yeah. which is probably the wrong 
the wrong category to try to justify people as if they're supposed to be created equal. I guess you could be humanist, and I don't mean that in the philosophical way. So, yeah, yeah. I lied to you. I have two questions. I don't. How do you describe hell to someone? Because when I read your chapter, as I went through, I'm like, oh, so I know where he's at. No, I don't. Oh, so I know where he's at. No, I don't. <laughs> and uh, especially when you start talking about Hitler, that reminded me yeah. a lot of when um, when Rob Bell got excommunicated from allowing to be a self-professing Christian, although I, I still enjoy his stuff, where he mm -hmm. walks through as his Numa video kind of ways of, you know, talking about Gandhi in heaven and Hitler in heaven and that type of stuff. Can you walk through that story of Hitler and how hell or how heaven may actually be a hell for him? And then what you believe, because I'm genuinely confused on what you believe. <laughs> what every author loves to hear. Um, no, um, so, so I mean, I mean that to say because you speak well to all three parts. Like you, you speak yeah. well to all, and so I don't know. I'm I'm, I'm trouble voicing it. Sure. Um, so with the Hitler story, um, it's an imaginary scenario similar to what C.S. Lewis does in The Great Divorce, where I just say, "Hey, you know, um, if Hitler got five minutes in heaven, what do you think it would feel like to him?" So you go through the scene, you know, and obviously he he shows up and let's say St. Peter welcomes him at the pearly gates. St. Peter's a Jew. Oh, Hitler would not like that very much. And so Hitler goes in and he tries to assemble, you know, an, an army of angels to take over heaven and all the angels, you know, won't give him the time of day. And then Jesus welcomes him in and says, you know, Adolf, you know, little man, um, <laughs> you did some really terrible things, but I forgive you and I have a place for you in my kingdom. And Hitler, you know, probably thinks, well, you, you mean forgive me? I don't, you know, I, I don't need to be forgiven. I didn't do anything wrong. I'm a big deal. I conquered a lot of Europe back in the day for a few years. I don't bow before you, you bow before me. Big idea would be if Hitler got five minutes in heaven, it would probably feel like an eternity in hell to him. And so what I'm trying to tease out there is this idea that that heaven and hell, I think, are, are better thought of not as, you know, these places that God has created and God sends people to um, and more of realities that people have created for themselves because of the people they have become over the course of a lifetime. There are some people who spend their entire lives, and I almost was a person like this, rejecting love and goodness and forgiveness and mercy um, and loving cruelty and wickedness and unforgiveness and bitterness. And if you've become a person like that, I don't think you would like heaven very much. You know, mm -hmm. I think you could be in heaven and it would feel like hell to you. Um, and so that's kind of the idea is that um, what we call, you know, that the fire of God's love um, will feel like heaven to some people and it'll feel like hell to other people. Um, the lake of fire that we find in Revelation is really just what the love of God feels like experienced by a soul that has spent its whole life rejecting the love of God. Um, and so hell exists, absolutely, but it's something that we very much choose and have created for ourselves. It exists on our end, not God's end. God will love all people forever. I mean, I think Scripture is very clear about that. But I do think some people might hate God for it forever because they've spent their whole lives moving away from God and hating other people and hating God. And so, you know, God's not going to magically make them enjoy heaven. They've decided that they don't want to be people who love what is true, good, or beautiful. And so hell exists, but um, it's it's just what heaven feels like to people who have spent their whole lives becoming crooked and hateful. Do you think they can opt out of that? Like, just, hey, stuff me out. Like, I'm really not interested in any of this. Like, is that is that a possibility? 
you know, that's beyond my pay grade. Um, <laughs> but um, I, I think Dallas Willard has this line. I think it's in the Divine Conspiracy where he says that everything that is just becomes more and more itself. And so if you have spent your whole life, um, again, rejecting that, which is true, good and beautiful, I don't see any reason why that would change in eternity. I think you probably just move further in the direction of hatefulness and cruelty and wickedness until you probably just snuff yourself out. Mm. That's, that's sad. That's very sad. Um, it not, is sad. And it, I hope yeah. it's not true, but you know, I think that's probably the best way to make sense of um, scripture and the church's traditional teaching on hell. Well, I ask that because I'm still struggling. So just full disclosure, um, quite a few people not in the West listen to the show, oddly enough, um, predominantly still the West, but it, w- the most popular episodes are uh, ones on doubt and a few on hell and the one on atonement, which mm-hmm. crack, which blows my mind. I've talked about so many topics and it's the tentpole issues that continue month yeah. in and month out, be chewed on and eaten the most. And... I still find myself waffling. Most of the time, I tend to be on the traditional um, uh, annihilationalist views, but even then, I still don't know where the nuance is. And yeah. I'm, I'm think I'm totally fine too with changing that. And so that's probably why I read that chapter that way because I'm still not quite solid on where I'm at. Mm-hmm. Um, so as I was finishing reading your book, I had just finished the day prior a book on uh, stigma and uh, psychological health, specifically in pastors, because you're not allowed to not show up. You have mm-hmm. to be there, and you don't, you have to, I guess you have to fake it. I'm not a pastor, but you can't be broken because I am. I need you to, I need you to unbreak <laughs> me. Yeah. And and then the news of the gentleman in California, the pastor that committed suicide, uh, and I read what his wife wrote, and then I was reading your chapter where you, I was listening to John Mark McMillan, as I do when I'm sad, and uh He's got a song <laughs> called. I, there's something about his lyrics. That, I love John Mark. Oh man, and, yeah. and maybe it's the way he sings them. But uh, there's a song in there where I think it's called "Thunder and the Lightning," um, where he says, "You know, basically, I'm struggling with all this stuff, and when I go out and I yell, and I'm really having a bad day, I'm having a bad year, I'm having a bad whatever, and you always seem to find me somewhere in between the thunder and the lightning. And the next mm-hmm. morning, I woke up. And I read that part of your book where you're like, Jesus is that." Mm-hmm. The, the, you know, every, Jesus is, I think you say Jesus is the lightning and everything else is the thunder. Yeah. And I just had to shut the book. I was like, I can't do this right now. <laughs> I don't deal with emotions well. I'm not ready for this. So I would like to end on that. So as, as a form of hope, as when we're doubting, when we're grieving, when we're struggling, and when we feel like we can be honest with ourselves, what does it look like when Jesus is the lightning mm-hmm. and everything else is the thunder? Yeah, so I use that metaphor in the book to try to explain this idea that Christian faith can be incredibly complicated. And, you know, so many people have so many different ideas about who God is and how we should think about God. It can become paralyzingly confusing sometimes. And so when you get to that place and you don't know where to turn and you don't know if you believe anymore and you definitely don't know what you believe, even if you believe, then, you know, Go back to the source of why you believed in the first place. And again, if you're like me, you you ended up believing not because someone made an awesome argument about, you know, while the tomb was empty and and then there's this historical this and that. And they found the walls of Jericho at some point. And, you know, here's this 
indisputable argument for the existence of God based on fine tuning in the universe, whatever. They found the ark. Most of us at rock bottom aren't Christians for any of those reasons. We're Christians because, again, there was this guy named Jesus from Nazareth, and he lived this life. And it was the most beautiful life that's ever been lived. The ripple effects of that life have so carried out throughout history that it's literally changed the world. And it's changed me. Like, I'm a very different dude than I was before I met Jesus. And I don't know if I'm a better person than people who don't have Jesus, but I know I'm better with Jesus than I am without Jesus. Mm -hmm. Um, And so when everything else gets unclear for me, I, I go back to the source of why I believed in the first place. And I'm never disappointed by Jesus. Like I've been disappointed in a lot of other things. Arguments make sense and don't make sense sometimes. My feelings come and go, but I've never been disappointed in Jesus. And so when it gets really confusing and you're heartbroken and you don't know where to go, go back to why this Christianity thing started in the first place. And it started because there was this dude named Jesus who lived a beautiful life and claimed to change the world and has changed the world and has changed a lot of our lives. Absolutely. And so that's where you go back to. You go back to the lightning when you got nothing else. Yeah, and everything else is just noise. Yeah. No, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful picture. And it's a beautiful analogy. Austin, thank you so much for coming back on. I genuinely appreciate it. A genuine pleasure to talk to you. Absolutely. Feelings very mutual and uh, we'll do it again sometime. Systems of oppression fueled by Thank you again for listening to today's episode. To protect my voice, uh, the outro, we'll make that just as short as possible. Uh, Today's music, graciously given permission from The Brilliance, which if you are not familiar with The Brilliance, you need to fix that problem right now. Um, So two recommendations, three recommendations. Uh, Go to the website, canisaythisatchurch.com. Leave me some feedback. Consider supporting the show on Patreon really enjoy getting to speak with you and obviously enjoy each and every one of you that support the show I encourage you to do so if you don't already do that you'll find the links to today's music in the show notes on the Spotify playlist called Can I Say This at Church I'll talk to you next week be blessed Oh, it's gone.